going to do this morning is we're going to be in chapter 11 of Revelation. You can turn there in your Bible if you want. Um, Well, you should. You should turn there in your Bible, even if you don't want to. And um, we're going to put it up on the screen and read it in a a bit. Um, But before we get to that passage, I want to kind of catch us up to where we are. Um, And don't worry, this won't make the message go crazy long because this is part of our time together. It's important as we go through Revelation to kind of be reminded of exactly the flow of this thing as we look at New Testament apocalyptic literature, which is a very unique and distinctive kind of biblical literature, of genre of the Bible. Um, Revelation is all about um, repetition, or a lot of it is about repetition, And uh, this word that we would use called recapitulation, which is basically summing something up again and again and again. This last week, I had the great privilege of being able to go to um, our primetimers potluck, which is for our seniors. And um, they played a game there called uh, the not-so-newlywed game, I think is what it was called. And uh, it was very fun to watch um, as these Four couples um, had to answer questions about each other and guess things about each other. Um, It's really funny to watch that with people who have been married a long time because they get really mad at each other when they get the questions wrong. You know, like I think when they're young, it's like, who knows? Do we know this about each other? When you're in the middle of life, you're kind of like, it's a blur. I don't know. I'm impressed that you knew that. That's fine. But when people are older, they're like, are you, how did you not know that? Like, are you kidding me? There was just a lot of this, a lot of this happening. Uh, One question, like, people could not seem to wrap their minds around was, like, what would this person order on a pizza? Because when you're married that long, it turns out that you don't order pizza for yourself. You order it for another person as well. So people were like, no, it's you. That's what you like. No, that's, I never like that. That's what you want, and that's what we, and it's just like, Tom was doing a very good job, like, refereeing this thing. Like, all right, let's keep it moving, keep it moving. But one of the best uh, answers that came was um, Bob and Teresa Pulford. Um, no, no, I'm not going to talk about that one, okay? Yeah, yeah. Things got crazy, guys. Things got crazy. We'll just say when a person says, what do they most like about you? You know, Teresa guessed that Bob would say, I'm nice. I think I'm fun. Uh, he likes her legs. I'll say it. No. Um, I can't not say it at this point. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry, guys. This is not, not in these, not in the notes at all. Bob and Teresa are currently in the nursery watching on an iPad. So, sorry, guys. They can hear us laughing from there. Um, no, but Bob and Teresa had a great answer to one of the questions, which was, um, you know, what, what bothers you about this person? And, like, Tom asked this question. I'm like, I don't know if I'd ask this question, you know, because there might be some pretty brutal answers. But um, what annoyed Teresa the most about Bob was she said uh, when he says something that he thinks, he repeats it again and again and again. And so he'll say something, and then I know he's going to say it again, and then he's going to keep talking. And she was like, so, you know, it's fine. I talked to them about it afterwards. She's like, so I just tell him, like, I'm just, I'm tuning out for 75% of what you're saying, and that's just what I'm going to do, but it's fine because you'll say it at one point in there, but I don't have to listen to all the rest of the time. So I'll just kind of tune back in um, at the end. I'm sure no one else here does that, right? That's terrible, right? But I was like, well, you know, that is what they teach us in in public speaking that you should do, right? You should repeat yourself again and again and again when you have a point to make, and it's important. They always say, tell them what you're going to say, then say it, 
then tell them what you said, right? Repeat yourself when something matters. Repeat yourself when something is important and you really want people to understand it. This is what happens a lot in the book of Revelation. Um, In Revelation, this idea, recapitulation, is when a person is summing it up again and again. And we all know what it's like to talk to someone who does that. It's like, okay, I got it. Let's move on, right? No, just to summarize, right? Uh, Just to repeat it one more time in a different way. Um, I do this a lot, I know. Um, But, oh, well. Uh, That's... That's a big part of communicating effectively to people, especially in the Eastern world. Um, In the Near East, in the ancient Near East, this was a huge, uh, people's conception of time um, was different than ours, and the things that people emphasized were different than ours. We're in a very um, sort of, we have a very scientific, chronological, investigative mindset in the Western world. And so we look at Revelation and we think, oh, this all has to lay out in order chronologically. And all of the details of the things that are being said have to be decoded and understood if we're going to get what this is talking about. But that's not really the way that people communicated back then. They told stories, they used symbolism, especially in this type of literature, and they repeated themselves again and again. I say that because it's important in understanding, I think, what is the most confusing part of Revelation, which is these series of sevens that come one after another. Um, It begins with seven uh, seals, and those seven seals are followed by seven trumpets, which are followed by seven bowls that we haven't even gotten to yet. But each one of these, John is using them to depict the same period of time from Jesus' resurrection, which already happened to the second coming, which has yet to happen, which will be the end of days. Now, in the seals, John does this by talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse coming in what one commentator, I think, perfectly describes it as a tragically average day in human history. If you were to look at what these four horsemen of the apocalypse represent and what they symbolize, we're actually seeing the outplay of a tragically average day in human history. What it is to live life on this planet is to experience all of these things in some form um, that these four horsemen bring. We hear about the martyrs in when we hear about the seven seals and their cries out to God and God saying to them, even more will die in the midst of this. And when the sixth seal is opened, God's response to their cry is the great day of the Lord. He brings about the day of the Lord, and this question is asked at the end of the seals. It's a question that we hear asked in Hosea, also in the book of Joel, because again, Revelation points back to the Old Testament again and again, and the question is, who will stand, right? Um, As the world ends, and the leaders, and even the most powerful people are saying, crush me with rocks, I'm so terrified with what's going on, who will stand before the Lord in this time, we then get the answer. God answers this. He takes a break after the seals, and he tells us about the 144,000 who themselves are sealed. Now, again, we have a tendency to get kind of focused and fixated even on what that seal looks like. What will it be? Just like we do with things like the mark of the beast that we read about. Uh, Most scholars have actually kind of agreed that these marks and these seals are alluding to the fact that these people will be known for this thing. So God seals his people, meaning he puts his protection on them. He kind of labels them himself, not like in an outward way that everyone will see, like a mark on your head or something. He, he, he puts us as his people, but then also 
uh, a seal was like your identity. And so these are the people who will be known, if anything, as a follower of Jesus. They'll be known as that even more than maybe a member of the Roman Empire, even more as, uh, than they would be known as an American today, or as a person who has a certain other nationality, even more than they'd be known by their, by their race or their ethnicity, they would be known as a believer in Jesus. They're sealed, and that's who they are. That's their identity. So God answers this question. 144,000 are sealed is his answer to the question, who will stand? Who will stand? He says, here's who will stand, these 144,000. Now, what he's doing is he's numbering off groups of people, and it doesn't mean there will literally only be 144,000 believers. What he's doing is he's numbering off groups of people in the way that you would take a military census. He's describing an army. He's saying there will be an army, and what does that army look like? The number of the army is what John hears. He hears about the number of the army, the 144,000, but then he turns and he sees a fulfillment of these images, which is people of all nations, an army of a lamb who can stand before God. So he hears the, the, the numbering of an army. He sees a group of people who are from all nations and tribes, and these people stand before God because they're the army of the lamb. A lamb, that doesn't sound very powerful, right? If you want to go into war, you don't put a lamb on a flag that's like laying down and peaceful. You certainly would have put a lamb that's been sacrificed and say, that's our, that's our mascot, right? That's the one that we're following. But that's exactly who it says they will do. And how does this army of 144,000 conquer? Not by killing. They conquer by suffering and by bearing witness about this lamb who died. Then, eventually, the seals wrap up with fire being cast down to the earth where it all will end. So the end of the first group of seven kind of paints, uh, lays out like what is happening now and is going to continue to happen, and it will end with the end of all things, which is God's kingdom coming, and that's what we see at the end of the seals. We then see a break, and there's seven trumpets. Now these seven trumpets come, and they offer, again, a different perspective of God's wrath. These ones seem a little bit more like the Exodus plagues. And the reason for that is because they shift, they repeat the points, they give us a different perspective, and that perspective is what it is going to be like for those who are not God's people, not believers. And for them, it's going to be even worse but the plagues, just like in Egypt, don't lead to repentance. They don't lead to God's people repenting, even though people experience them and many suffer. Uh, what happens after these seven trumpets is the scroll that was unsealed is now given to John. And as we talked about last week, the angel says to him, eat it. Don't just read it. God's word of his kingdom and his kingdom coming, I want you to take it in fully. It's going to be sweet, but it's also going to hurt your tummy, is what he says. It's going to be bitter, and it's going to not sit well with your stomach, as God's word often does within us. These are different uh, ways of showing us the same thing that's happening. When I was in youth group as a high schooler, I remember, I'll never forget this time that our youth pastor did this exercise where he said, um, we're gonna, I want you all to draw a picture 
of, and this wasn't like in a bad way, but he said, I want you to draw a picture of who you think, what you think God would look like, of who God is. He wasn't saying we're all going to decide that God's something different for us and then go home. He was saying, when you think of God, what is the mental image that you have? And uh, I, I remember I drew a fisher of men because I had heard that story and I felt like God basically hooked me. You know, he caught me and he reeled me in. I was like fighting him the whole way and he reeled me in. So I think of God as somebody who, who reaches out and grabs people and catches them and brings them into his, to his fold, right? Uh, one person did like a, a bunch of people did a guy with big white hair, white beard, big robe, sitting on a big throne, you know, looking kind of like a wizard or something. Uh, one person did like a, like a parent, like with a, with a family and said, God to me is like a father with children who cares for them, right? Um, one person did like a guy who looked like he was pretty ripped and he was buff, and they were like, that's God. You know, that's what God looks like. It'd be kind of cool if that does end up being, you know. But, and each one of us was saying in our understanding, here's what we think of, and this is similar to what God is doing with John. He's showing him manifestations of himself and his kingdom in different ways so that he can kind of see all these different angles because the whole point of Revelation, as we've been saying, is to pull back the curtain of what's happening here on this, in this world and to remind us that God wins, that God wins. So he gives him the scroll, he eats it, and what we read about in chapter 11 is what's contained on that scroll, basically, and it's what we're going to read about right now. So if you have your Bible, you can turn it to Revelation 11, and we'll put it up on the screen. Longest introduction ever. I'm now one-fifth of the way through the message. Just kidding. Uh, Revelation 11 says this. We're going to read up to verse 13, or up to verse 14, and then we're going to stop right there. When Jesus had finished instructing... Wait, I'm on Matthew. (laughs) What in the world? (laughs) Sorry, guys. I'm kind of all over the place this morning. Um, I just keep thinking about prime timers. Okay, uh, the two witnesses. When I was given a measuring rod like a staff, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. 
Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So, what we read about here is what is contained on this scroll. And what is contained on this scroll is basically how God's kingdom is going to come on the earth. How God plans to do that. And it begins by talking about a temple. Talking about a temple that he is going to measure and that there is an area that he isn't to measure, which is the courtyards outside the temple. So what the measuring of the temple is, is it is protection. Uh, The measuring of the temple is him symbolically placing a protection over this temple. And the idea of the courtyard is that it is the area outside of God's protection where he will allow things to happen that will be harmful to people who are his believers. He'll allow, it says, people to be trampled and beaten, and these things will happen. Now, there's obviously debate, like anything in Revelation, about what some of these things represent, right? Uh, What does this temple represent? Is it uh, a future temple that's going to be built? Is it a temple that was going to be destroyed and rebuilt? Like, or is it symbolic of something else? And um, I think that it seems very clear to me that in talking about the temple, it's connected to this discussion about these witnesses and about the ministry that's happening in the church. And so the temple is serving here in place of the church. It is a symbol of God's church who will bring his kingdom to the earth. There's language throughout the New Testament that tells us this, uh, that it became very common in people's mind to understand um, the church itself, believers themselves, as a new temple of the Lord, rather than the physical temple that they worshipped at in the Jewish faith. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, we read this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Seems pretty straightforward, right? Uh, We are considered a temple of God. We read on in Hebrews chapter 3, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So uh, we are his house, Hebrews tells us. And probably the passage that that I know that resonates with me the most because it's on the individual level here and tells us how this all, we all work together as a temple. First Peter 2 says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God's chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, 1 Peter tells us that we are stones brought together, built up into a temple, a house of the Lord. I remember um, 
reading about this the first time, hearing some of these things the first time, and being surprised at the way that symbolism was used, even here in the New Testament, by people who were preaching the gospel, explaining to the church through these letters and the epistles who they are, what their identity is. So we see in Revelation that God's temple, uh, this one that's being measured, represents his church. And this measurement is protection. And what it tells us is that um, what this symbolizes is that external defeat, because there is suffering and persecution and what seems like defeat of believers in the courtyard of the temple, right? That's what we just read about. These people are going to suffer. They're going to be killed. They're not only going to be killed, but they're not even going to have the dignity of being buried. They're going to be left there and mocked and reviled by people in the way that Jesus was himself. But ultimately, what would happen? They would be brought up to heaven. They would be vindicated. And God would use them to show that he ultimately wins, that he reigns. What we are supposed to take away from this, there's a couple of things. One is uh, how we fit into this, how, how God plans to bring his kingdom to the earth, which is through his church. But the other is an encouragement, that external defeat, which many will experience. External defeat cannot take away, it cannot take away the victory of this lamb who we serve. Now, the key to understanding this section lies in verse 13, because it says this, and at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. So something that you must remember that we must see running through Revelation is that up until this point, did the seals bring about any repentance of people? No. Did the trumpets, much like the plagues of Egypt, bring about the repentance of a single person? No. God's wrath and his justice, which is what those things are, they're God loving, being a God of justice and pouring out his wrath, even as we live today, pouring it out upon the world. But even with all of that, does it lead to people actually repenting and following him? No. Here we read for the first time about the repentance of people. It says, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So this is important because what this tells us is how God is going to bring people into his fold, how he is going to bring his kingdom to those who are willing to repent and to see it. Here's the question. How is God bringing people to repentance? I mean, if Revelation is about God winning, is it really just about um, everybody being punished who's not already a believer at that point and then that's it? Or does God have a plan to bring more in to the fold, to give people the opportunity to turn to him and have their hearts softened? And there is a way that God plans to do this, and we see it here in this passage. He's using the church. He is not using his judgment and his wrath to bring people to repentance. He is going to use, and he is using, because this is talking about the time in which we live now. The church is that temple. And God is protecting us, but his protection does not always seem like protection to us. Because many people suffer, and many are killed, 
and many will die. But what Revelation makes clear in chapter 11 here is that God's plan to bring people to repentance is to use the church, to use his church to draw them to him. That's how he plans to do it. We see it here in chapter 11, especially in verse 13. But I think the question, I think this is hard for us to wrap our minds around and fully understand because, as we've talked about before, the church doesn't seem as powerful as it once did for many of us. We think, well, isn't the church declining? Aren't there less people who are believers? Why would God allow something like that to happen? Isn't it our goal to shape the culture of the world outside of the church? And that's the way that God is going to bring his kingdom, to bring people into it. There's all kinds of ways that we have mistakenly thought that God wanted to bring his kingdom to come. When in reality, his desire has been to use his church to bring people the gospel so that they would come to repentance. And that church is not the most powerful group of people. That church is not dictating the culture. That church may not seem influential. The church here that was being written to certainly wasn't. And yet, he's still going to use them to bring people to repentance. It won't be their power. It won't be their might. It won't be their ability to defeat their enemies. In fact, They themselves will suffer and be persecuted. They'll feel like losers, and they'll feel like, is God caring for us and watching out for us? God will use those people, us, in order to reach others with the hope of the gospel. That is his plan for their salvation. The way that he's doing this is he's using the church. And I think we have to be even more specific and recognize and ask this question. Then how is the church bringing people to repentance? If that is God's goal, to use the church, then how does the church do it? This is like the question. I mean, if you're a pastor, if you're a leader in the church, if you're an elder, you sit down sometimes and you have long conversations about how the church is going to do what it's called to do. What is our mission? How do we accomplish it? How do we bring people to repentance? And there are a lot of different opinions on how to do that. If you don't know that, you haven't been in any of those conversations. There's a lot of different opinions. How do we do it? How do we bring people to repentance? Well, we see how as this goes further. It is through the witness of the believers themselves. If we go on, in, um, and I don't have a slide for this, but um, you can look it up in your Bible. We read in verse 4 this. Uh, or we read in verse 3. We'll start there. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days and clothed in sackcloth. So there are two witnesses. This, this tells us, this gives us the, the imagery of a temple that's being measured, and these witnesses. But it goes a step further. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And then he goes on and he talks about how 
if people harm them, what will happen? So who are these witnesses? What are these olive trees? What are these lampstands? So the witnesses are being referred to also as lampstands. Now, many people have wondered, like, does this mean that two specific people are going to show up and be a really big deal, right? They're going to go viral, and everyone's going to hear their prophetic message, and it's going to cause people to change the way that they're living? No, I don't think so. Because what does he say here? He says that they are lampstands. And lampstands, earlier in Revelation, is a clear description of the church. The church serves as a lampstand. That's how John refers to it before most of this revelation is even unfolded that we've been looking at. So if the church is lampstands, then this represents the people of the church. Now, these lampstands have two olive trees. Why two olive trees? Well, there's a lot of symbolism with olive trees and with trees that make us think of Christ and make us think of God who is our source. But I think olive trees produced olive oil and olive oil powered lamps. And if you have a tree next to your lamp, then theoretically, you never run out of oil. So we are the lampstands, and we have an endless source of oil, of fuel. The light will never go out. At least, it won't be going out because God didn't give us enough fuel. So the Holy Spirit has empowered the church with everything that we need to keep shining that light, to be the city on the hill that the church is called to be. Do you see? So these lamps are us. But it's specific. It talks about people, right, individuals. And it uses, it goes, brings us back to, uh, it talks about them uh, causing the rain to not fall and, uh, and plagues and things that they'll bring that will make people suffer. This is to remind us of Elijah and Moses and these prophets. Now, these people that they're, these things are describing, they already happened, right? So are they going to happen again? Is Moses going to come back and Elijah going to come back? No. These witnesses, the people of the church, the witnesses, will bring this message of the gospel, and they will do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. They'll never run out of that. They'll have endless access to God's Holy Spirit and his power. They will do it by being prophetic. There's obviously an indication that they're prophetic, meaning they bring a revelation of God's truth to people. We all have that call to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, be prophetic in our witness, and as we do it, we'll suffer. That suffering doesn't mean that we're being defeated, and it doesn't mean that we were wrong, and it doesn't mean that we failed. He will give power to do miraculous things that we see in the church even today. He will empower you with his Holy Spirit, and he gives you a prophetic message, which is the gospel itself. And we go out with that message. So how does the church bring people to repentance? It's interesting. I mean, you could really look at this stuff and pick it apart all day. And I've done that, believe me. I mean, you'll notice that there's two witnesses. There's not one. How do we see the most successful ministry in the church happening today? A person standing here saying something. And if we're lucky, it goes out on the internet and everyone gets to see it, right? Share it with all their friends, and, and that's how it's going to change. That's how we're going to change the world, right? That's not how we're going to change the world. It's not going to be because enough people got enough platforms individually and became well-known to people, and then that changed everything. 
It actually, Scripture describes people not doing this in isolation, but people doing it at least in pairs. This reminds us of where Jesus sent out the disciples two by two. We do it together. We don't do it alone. So much of the church today is like, I expect the church to do the work of this, or I'm jaded and I'm disenfranchised and I've deconstructed my view of the church and only I can do this by myself with no one else in my life and certainly no community. But what we're shown here is witnesses together, right? Going together with the gospel message to other people. There's so many ways in which this tells us what it looks like, but also when you look at the rest of the New Testament, when you look at what Jesus taught his disciples to do, that's what they're describing. I will never forget when I first heard, started hearing this language that we are priests, that we are stones built into a temple, because I became a Christian because other people who I was impressed by were saying things and doing things that that were changing my life. When someone said to me, now you have the call to go, and all of us do, I was like, what? We, don't, we can't do that. I don't have those abilities. The people around us certainly can't pull that off. How about you just keep doing it? It's going to come down to the prophetic witness of believers who must be willing to even suffer for it, to not stop because suffering is involved. An author that I greatly respect named Russell Moore, he wrote a book recently uh, kind of talking about how the church, how to be a believer in America has changed significantly over the last several years. He used to be um, the spokesman for the Southern Baptist Convention, so, you know, pretty involved in church stuff. He's the editor of Christianity Today now, pretty involved in the perspective on how the church is, is living out their witness in the world today. And he said that the church has experienced a shift that is so extreme that we can barely get our bearings. We've moved from being a moral majority to the prophetic minority. And that process has been scary. You see, years ago, we believed because we had more power, more influence, People wanted to act like people in the church. People were drawn to the church because they thought, yeah, that's a good way to live my life. We shared the same values. And we believed that the way that we were going to reach the world was by shaping the very culture itself. And we felt influential because of that. But, as it turns out, that's not how God was intending to use us to reach the world. That instead... As, as the cultural like value, as the values of our faith have declined in our culture, we felt marginalized. We felt like what Brandon talked about when he preached on the church from Philadelphia. What is it like to lose some of the influence or some of the power that you feel like you once had? But the good news is that wasn't what was going to reach people anyway. What reaches people is recognizing that we are what Russell Moore calls a prophetic minority. We are a smaller group of people than we thought, but we are a people who are meant to proclaim a prophetic message. And that message is the good news of the gospel. If we, if we recognize that that's who we are, if we look in Revelation and go, yeah, that, does, that is a lot how it feels today. If we look at the early church and think, I can relate to that, living in the culture I live in today. 
then we get a much better idea of what our job is to do. The way that we are going to reach the world is through the prophetic witness that each one of us bring to the people in our lives, to our jobs, to our neighborhoods, to our family members. We eventually close with um, the seventh trumpet because, again, because this is a, a, a restating you know, of what happened from a different perspective, each one of these series of seven ends with the end, right? And then we go back and we see it again. We see, we see wrath, we see pain and suffering, we see God's witnesses and him saying, even though they are suffering, I am still with them and they will be victorious. That always happens. And then we see the end come. When the seventh seal, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and, his, and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God almighty, who is and who was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for awarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The last trumpet will sound, God's kingdom will come, and our time for witness will end. But that time, that has not happened yet. We find ourselves living in these days that we read about in Revelation. These are dis disorienting and difficult and scary times to live in if you're a people who are called to be this prophetic minority that the church is called to be. But if we understand our identity... I'll tell you one thing that is very important to our culture right now is identity and understanding exactly who I am. Good news. We don't have to go figure that out. We have an answer. The answer is, here's who you are. You are someone who has been given a message. You are to go with that message. Don't go alone. But don't rely on others to do it either. You are to go with that message into the world. You are to be the one who points things out to people and says, do you see God here? Do you see God active here? Do you see God active here? We believe that God, Scripture tells us that God is drawing all people to him. Our job is to help them see that, is to try to be a part of the process in their lives to say, do you see how God is drawing you to him? We're not supposed to do it alone. We are the lampstands, and we have been given an endless supply of power, of oil, to keep those lights going until God returns. Let's pray.